My goal today is to tell you a little bit about Heritage Peace, some of our projects, what it's like to be a small NGO working in this kind of situation, and to also just tell you a little bit about what some of the other groups are doing uh, in protecting heritage in conflict. And whilst I'll be talking about Syria, quite a lot of these examples are also being done elsewhere. So Heritage for Peace is a non-profit organisation aiming to support all heritage workers in their effort to protect and safeguard cultural heritage during armed conflict. As an international group of heritage workers, we believe that cultural heritage and the protection thereof can be used as a common ground for dialogue and therefore a tool to enhance peace. We call on all colleagues of all, religious and all religions and ethnicities to enter into a dialogue and work together to safeguard their mutual heritage. Cultural heritage is of global importance and the protection of it should be a concern for all of us. It is through the past we may find support for future peace. In organising our work, Heritage for Peace remains impartial and continues to call on all parties associated with conflict to fulfil their obligations under international law in protecting the country's precious cultural heritage sites and institutions. So uh, this is our chair, this is Isva smiling at you. Um, Heritage for Peace was born out of the World Archaeological Congress in 2012, where a bunch of heritage workers got together and really felt that something needed to be done in Syria. And so they formed Heritage for Peace and it was registered in March in 2013. It's entirely voluntary based. We have no paid members of staff uh, and no full-time members of staff for that matter. Everything that is done is done by volunteers from a number of different countries. We work with the DGAM, with several opposition groups, with local NGOs and with various individuals. And the first question that we had to face, and the reason, real reason we started the NGO, uh, and I'll quote this from a, a recent press release, one leading independent organisation devoted to saving the world's treasured places, that's their description of themselves, and they give out millions of dollars to endangered sites, and they've deliberately chosen not to focus on any sites in the Middle East, and said this week instead, when the conflict is over, they will be there. And we really felt that attitude wasn't okay. It's not okay to wait till the conflict is over. Too much damage is done during the conflict that could be mitigated. And there are colleagues working in those situations who really need support. We believe that cultural heritage and its protection, even during a conflict, can bring people closer together and it can act to enhance peace. And that's really hard to do, obviously. It's not like there are really obvious good guys and bad guys. I mean, would that there were, but maybe there are better guys and worse guys. Even the idea, I heard in a recent conference, uh, somebody said, Daesh are evil and we must call them evil and we must give them this label. And I can see why people do that. But if you think about it, there is so much propaganda out there that if, say, somebody did believe that propaganda and they went out there and they found out that this really wasn't what they thought it would be, and then they wanted to come home because they made a horrible mistake, and we put them on that label and said, you, you are evil. And it's very hard to come back from that. So we need to be very careful about how we turn these groups and how we work with them and how we and the labels we apply to be honest um, and it is really difficult because there's a lot of different politics about who can and can't work with who and the different sides and who the different governments recognize so we've decided we're focusing on supporting the country aimed at stabilization and consolidation of uh, sites particularly but also providing advice for object conservation it's a very risk management perspective we try and avoid high-tech solutions, they're hard to get, they're quite expensive, so our focus is very, very practical. And then outside the country, we do quite a lot of awareness raising. So our goals are about make, helping people to recognise 
all forms of cultural heritage in Syria, about understanding across different communities and helping them work together. We provide a lot of instructive material for skill development and act as a point of liaison for different groups in the conflict. So I'll tell you a little bit about some of our results, the ones that worked and the ones that didn't. So we put up a website with a list of resources. Uh, some are in Arabic, most are in English. We're always looking for translators to help us put them into Arabic so we can help spread them more widely. We've held workshops, training courses. Uh, this one, for example, was at the request of the DGAM. We also held one for the Interim Ministry of Culture in Gaziantep. Uh, and here's another one. Uh, we've published a no-strike list for Aleppo. Now, these ones are quite contentious. So I'll talk a little bit more about this. The idea was in 2013 that clearly the conflict in Syria, particularly in Aleppo, was about to intensify. There were various groups moving to overtake the city. The World Heritage Site had just been placed on the World Heritage List in danger. Uh, and so Heritage for Peace wanted to draw attention to the, for this to the parties involved in the conflict. And the idea would be to have a register of what was considered to be the most important sites that would then be passed around so these sites could be avoided, they wouldn't be targeted. So Heritage for Peace consulted with colleagues in Syria and chose a list of the top 20, I'll explain that in a moment, most important sites in Aleppo. They wanted to represent the different communities there as well, represent the fact Aleppo is very diverse. So there were mosques, there was a church, there was a synagogue, there was things, historic buildings like the citadel, the historic souks. Uh, that being said, that is 20 sites. Aleppo has over 2,000 known sites and probably an awful lot more underneath it. It is built on about 7,000 years of occupation. Didn't work. Uh, about 60% of the World Heritage Site of Aleppo is thought to be destroyed, although we can't exactly get in to verify that. Now, no-strike lists are very contentious at the end of the day, uh, partly because they involve working with the military, because the mili it is military forces, either organised or otherwise, who are doing most of the damage. To give you an idea, I myself have actually worked with UK Blue Shield to do one working with the UK military for Syria. Uh, these are the numbers of sites. We don't really know how many sites you can put on a list, which is, is really problematic. Um, and obviously, if we look at Syria, it seems like that kind of approach isn't very effective. But equally, uh, this is Ras al-Margheb Roman Fort in Libya, where uh, working with NATO this site was on the list of sites not to be hit. And I would actually like to stress such sites aren't just, such lists aren't about heritage sites. The heritage community contributes heritage sites to it, but it is also about schools and hospitals and other important places that should be avoided in a military operation if possible. Uh, in this particular instance, the Roman fort flashed up on NATO's uh, list of sites not to be targeted and they were able to changed the way they conducted their operation to protect the fort whilst taking out the listening fort post stationed around it, or post plural, I should say. But that does raise lots of questions for us about what goes on a list. And it's really complicated because it seems like you just go, yes, important things, they go on lists, that's great. Except for the fact that the UK has 376,099 listed buildings as of this March. We can't put all of those on a list. Uh, it's too many. And the international community really needs to start working on what we focus on and how we focus on it. And we're quite scared to do that. We want those other countries to come and tell us. But when we are, may not have diplomatic relations with them, when things are very fraught, it's very difficult to be able to do that. And it's not just about 
how we make even the lists. Uh, for example, the UN and has recently spoken about putting boots on the ground, cultural blue hats. And I hope that if they go in, they will go in as part of a pe wider peacekeeping operation that happens to have cultural heritage as well in its remit. But Babylon alone, according to Colonel Matthew Bogdanus, would take 500 men to protect. And that is one site. So we need to think really hard about how we use this information and about how we're prioritising it. And the same goes for rebuilding. When we collect all this information in about rebuilding, what are we going to rebuild? How are we going to focus it? And that's, those are questions we're only just starting to tackle. One of our definite successes, uh, Heritage for Peace had a conference, Conflict and Heritage, Lessons to Safeguard Syrian Heritage, in partnership with the Spanish National Research Council and the University of Cantabria, where we brought together people from Bosnia, Iraq, Egypt, Libya and Syria to talk about the problems that had already been faced so we could have lessons that had been learned from this. Now, that was really successful actually because we had the DGAM, the Syrian Antiquities Authority, and also representatives from the Interim Ministry of Culture. And everybody sat around the same table and they actually agreed together to sign a declaration, which is on our website, on the Heritage for Peace website, about the value of Syria's heritage and about the need for its protection. And that's a very small thing, but it's probably one of the only examples you will find of two different sides sitting down around the same table, finding something they could agree on. And that's the kind of thing we would like to use to build on for peace as a step forward, if you start small and build on that. One of the more contentious projects Heritage for Peace was involved in, they put a resolution on the table, or tried to, for the Geneva Peace Talks. It was drawn up in agreement with the Syrian National Coalition, translated into Arabic with an accompanying white paper. This was then sent to the head of the Syrian National Council chief negotiator after a meeting with him to discuss the relevant international treaties on the protection of cultural heritage. He'd never heard of any of them, and it turns out most of them hadn't been translated into Arabic for him because apparently they weren't relevant. Similarly, we talked to the DGAM about it, so they weren't taken by surprise. Ultimately, it passed through several channels, uh, the UNESCO Assistant Director General for Culture, the Director of the Arab Regional Centre for World Heritage, the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. None of them were willing to take it to put it on the table. Uh, and obviously, the non-heritage community also felt that it wasn't a priority. Maybe they were right, I'm not here to judge, but I will say that we felt that it was time to try something different, to try and get the importance of the destruction of Syria's heritage of the illicit antiquities trafficking onto the table to raise it in international perspectives. And we were actually really hev heavily criticised for this. Heritage for Peace were told very strongly that we shouldn't have done it, that we shouldn't have interfered, and it really wasn't our place to get involved. And similarly, in other things we've done, uh, feedback has ranged from, thank you very much, to we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't get involved. For one training course we were invited to run for the DGAM, a different training organisation came up and said, we should stick to the Interim Ministry of Culture. We train the DGAM. Fair enough. Um, I don't think we'd ever realised that it was something where we had to carefully mark out our little territories. It's very much a field where, as a small NGO, it is hard to establish a reputation, certainly, but also where there are people who feel very territorial about what they've done. We tried to do a survey of the foreign missions. This was launched at a major uh, Middle Eastern conference in June 2014, trying to get information from them on a secure, they would upload it anonymously onto a secure web server about the status of their excavations so we could pass that information on to the DGAM. Three responses. This goes back to the idea that it's a new NGO. People didn't really trust us, didn't trust what we would do with the information. 
Similarly though, at that meeting, uh, Shirin was founded. I think you probably heard a bit about them before I got here and they had done that very successfully. So the information is there and that is what counts. We did actually help the Interim Ministry of Culture in Gaziantep set up a task force on antiquities and museums. It was funded by the Netherlands and we helped them with the organisational design and the capacity building, highlighting the problems of working in a conflict situation. Since then, the Minister and the Deputy Minister have both been replaced and we're back to square one. And there is, at present, no task force on antiquities and museums. Now, one of the other things we focus a lot on is about uh, damage recording. So we work to verify our damage via our contacts. You might have heard about the apparent Russian bombing of Shinshara. That is the Russian bombing at Shinshara. Or at least that isn't a bombing at Shinshara. I don't think the people on the ground were not you know, looking at the planes going, oh, it's so-and-so, but somebody definitely has. So we work to verify that and then pass this information back to people like the, the DGAM who need this information. Um, hang on, Ooh, go back one because I think I've lost my slides. We also do a damage newsletter and we've done this since March 2013. It goes out every two weeks. If you're interested, sign up on our website and we will email into your inbox a list of what has happened. For example, Shachar is a World Heritage Site. That was completely overlooked because all the press wanted to talk about was Palmyra, Palmyra, Palmyra. But there are other sites being damaged, some that are just as important. Uh, and that would all be in the newsletter, along with what the international community is doing about it. We publish everybody's responses and what they're doing. So, damage documentation, though, is actually really difficult. Because um, the first question is, why do we bother? I mean, are we not just sitting there recording stuff? Um, which we are, but it does matter. Partly, we have 3D recording, which lets us do blueprints effectively. If we're going to rebuild it, we have the records. So that's really important. And even the sites that look like they're decimated. If you have time, go and look up a project uh, that's just been finished by the Germans. Tel Halaf was a site in Syria. They had a lot of statues that were in Germany that were destroyed in World War II. They just finished putting them back together from 27,000 fragments. And it's amazing. The quality of the work is fantastic. They can do a lot now. I and mean, that's not to say we can save everything. Some things will be rebuilt rather than reconstructed. But the possibility is there and we need high quality information that being said again a lot of the electronic recording projects are great but we need to grapple with problems about how we actually deal with this electronic data some of you might have seen the amazing thing on facebook going around at the moment the kid going but mummy mummy how did you 3d print the save icon holding up a floppy disk we really need to start thinking yeah there it is <laughs> we need to start thinking about how we manage that 3d data because it's changing so fast and that's problematic we have problems verifying some of it too is half of this even true certainly we know for a fact some of the stories coming out of these places are false there was one mosque that i looked at uh, last week and as i was recording incidents it's been destroyed three times in the last year either it gets better really fast or some of those stories are wrong and I have other photos where people are swearing blind that this church has been destroyed and other photo photographers saying, oh, I took this yesterday, it is fine. So we have to be very careful about the data that we use. I have to think about what we're recording as well. So is it okay to go and say, well, yeah, this site is damaged and so is this one. But what does that mean? Is that this site is destroyed or is there shrapnel damage to the facade? And we don't really have the terms to deal with that even. And that's something we're having to grapple with as well. We have to be quite careful about who we're doing it for and make sure that we're not just doing it so that we feel less powerless. 
so that we go, I'm doing something, I'm recording damage for the future. I'm making sure that that information gets out there to the people who need it, that we're working with the people who are doing the reconstruction. So we're recording the information they need so that we're giving it to the DGAM so that they can manage their sites and their resources because they don't have that many. And that's really important. So what we have uh, is this amazing report towards the protection of Syrian cultural heritage. We probably should have called it something snappier. But anyway, this is a summary that we publish more or less every six months. This one is six months late because I'm a volunteer and I went on maternity leave. But it is what the international community is doing. So if you're interested in a lot of this and you want to know more, this is volume three. It is now launched. It is on our website. Uh, you'll be able to find a lot of information in that. So where it says two volumes, this is number three. And I'm just going to give you a very quick overview of the kinds of things that people are doing. I will stress that in this report, this is literally from web surfing. There are problems with language barriers. I know the Japanese are doing things. I don't know what they are. And there are other countries who I have no doubt are doing lots of good work in this field. And this is not meant to slight them, but I can only do so much on the internet. So straight away, I can tell you actually a lot of people are doing things. 38 new organizations, 38 organizations stepped in almost straight away and 14 were brand new. Six were Syrian. The Syrians really do want to help protect their heritage and most of them were volunteers. That's fantastic. There's a real want and desire to help both within the country and outside it. By 2014, there were 66 organizations involved. I decided this time around, I didn't even bother counting them because there are so many conferences and ways that people are trying to bring people together to discuss solutions that actually the list just got ridiculous. Some of it's about promotion. It's about going out there and about sharing information and discussing it and raising awareness. That's fantastic. It's really important. If we don't raise awareness, then it will continue to be a problem that keeps repeating itself and keeps repeating itself because we have been in these situations before. Uh, we talk about ratifying the Hague Convention in the UK. That's something we really need to do. That's really important. It's been on the agenda twice before. Let us hope that this time the pressure is there, that we can do that. But that only happens if we keep raising awareness. We don't let anybody think this problem has gone away and that it is going to just go away. It helps us get more funding. Uh, and that sounds selfish, but without the money, we can't do anything. And we need these, the money coming in to help people. The DGAM right now would like some equipment that costs £30,000. I don't have that. I don't have any way to get that. We need more. If we don't keep up with the awareness raising, we can't help, we can't get them the equipment that they need. So this kind of thing is really important. And at the end of the day, it helps us plan for reconstruction as well. Because if we keep pointing out heritage is there, it is something you need to take account of. If you're going out and you were going and you were doing a rebuilding, think about it. It's not just about flagship projects. It's not just about world heritage sites. They're really important as well. But there are local communities who are losing their heritage. Small groups, people who mustn't be forgotten by the international community. We don't want it to just turn into a, well, I'll do that bit and I'll do that bit and oh, you just weren't there in the line. And we can't do that unless we raise awareness of the problem. Some of the things do both. This is what a red list looks like. I don't know whether you've probably seen the slide before. Um, so the red list raise awareness of illicitly trafficked objects, but also combat looting at the end of the day. There are currently four in the Middle East. I say times two for Iraq because they had one in 2003 and they just updated it for 2015, which is great. But obviously it's a regional problem we need more of them and they're a big investment of time to, to do that so that's something else that i'm sure we'll see more of them there's also more practical approaches there are workshops and training there have been seven courses held for the dgam in the last year alone 
There are plans to put in place site and object inventories, databases recording damage, databases to help record sites so that we have these records. There are projects with restoration planning, projects for stabilising sites. So people going out and saying, well, you know, Heritage for Peace have had people come to them say, you know, I, I found these manuscripts. They were in a damaged building. They're really badly damaged. They're hundreds of years old. What do I do with them? And we're there to help give them advice, to offer emergency conservation measures, but also for the ones that aren't even necessarily as, as much of an emergency, but there was a lot to be done. And we need to find ways to get material to them. Uh, you know, one of the DJM's big requests at the moment, and I said, you know, what do you need? What's your wish list? And number four on it was plaster. You take it for granted. It's a small thing, but actually, when you have that many damaged buildings, something like that's huge and also big and heavy and hard to transport. So we need to work on things like that. Obviously, there are projects tra preventing illicit trafficking. It's a huge thing, um, and it's really important. And there are projects doing this, and new legislation coming in in America, in Germany, it, it is becoming a focus. We do campaign for better legislation, more international cooperation. Burnham was right, we need a lot more of this, uh, both in the UK and globally, and ways to tackle problems that are global, that are not about one country. The illicit trade networks are global, so just tackling them in one place here and one place there won't stop them. But the same goes for our working with the military. We have a lot of ways that we look to do that, and it is very, very difficult. Most of it, at the end of the day, comes back down to how we prioritise it. So Heritage for Peace's next few actions are plans. We've been very quiet for the last year, actually. You won't really find much of us in the International Actions Report. Um, we're seeking funding for task forces in areas outside government control, because there are Syrians who are trained heritage professionals who want to do their jobs. They want to go out there, they want to protect sites. They need support to do it at the end of the day, and so we're seeking funding for that. We're looking to train imams in those areas in heritage law because they are the local law courts and they want to know their responsibilities under international law, so we're looking for ways to train them. And in Berlin at the moment, we're looking about whether to get involved in projects that will help refugees in Berlin connect with their heritage in the Berlin museums, but also to learn about the new country that they're about to live in. So we're trying to work quite closely with the people. And the one that I forgot to put on the slide, which is rubbish, we also have a project looking to hopefully work in the refugee camps. Again, looking to help children out there connect with their heritage because there are children growing up there now who've never even seen it. So to finish off then, this is us, this is Heritage for Peace. And I will say with a cheeky plug, we are about to start, start a major crowdfunding campaign uh, because we would like to move this from being entirely volunteers to have paid staff. So. If you are interested, do check out our website, maybe think about the Donate Now button. And failing that, if you have some free time, particularly if you speak Arabic, do drop us an email. We would love help translating so we can pass on more resources to people who can use it. Thank you very much.